Here we go. Let's get into our Bible study. We're in 2 Timothy chapter 2. For those of you who haven't been with us up to this point, welcome. Okay, we're jumping into, we're wrapping up what we've been studying for the last few weeks. And a lot of it is talking about our Bible study, but giving some confidence in the Bible that we study that that Bible is complete. And that's what I want to talk about today is how do we know that we have the complete scriptures and talk about some practical areas of Bible study. So we've been blending that as we've been going along. Our basis for what we're teaching is found in 2 Timothy. Timothy chapter 2, down in verse 15. He makes a comment, he says that, from a child you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And then he makes this comment in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, for instruction, that the man or the woman of God may be matured or perfect, thoroughly furnished or completely equipped to do the good works. And so with that in mind, let's remind ourselves that according to Peter, when he is written, writing under the inspiration, he's describing the work of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit moved men of God so that they would record exactly what we were supposed to be given. Now, this process that the Holy Spirit followed involved giving revelation, letting truth be known, that otherwise people people couldn't know about God, inspiring so that it was communicated properly, uh, both to in reception and communication uh, verbally or especially written down, which is our Bible. And that comes to that idea of inscripturation, that the Holy Spirit moved in such a way that if, uh, uniquely, if Alice were a scripture writer back in the day, God would have moved upon her mind, her spirit, so that she would record the exact words, the exact phrases in such a way that we could still tell that Alice wrote it. And and yet at the same time, it's coming from the mind of God. So it's just a supernatural work. It's hard to explain because it is so unique. And then what he does is the Holy Spirit continues to work in you. He gives you illumination, which is basically understanding of that scripture. And so if we were to chart it, we'd make it look like this. God is speaking to men some way, somehow giving revelation, giving information. And then those men, through the empowering and guiding of the Holy Spirit, they wrote it down in such a way that it was still coming from the mind and the Spirit of God. Now, we read it today, and as we read it, we have questions, we don't understand some things, we need to study, so the Holy Spirit moves within us so that we can come to a proper understanding. So with that in mind, let's do another little quiz, okay? Was all special revelation is that which, uh, which was given... Not in nature, not like creation, we know there's a God, not conscience that we know that there's right and wrong, but this is more detailed information about God himself. That's called special revelation. It could include dreams, visions. It could include a whole variety of things that God was revealing more about himself, more about truth. Was all special revelation inspired and inscripturated or written down? Everything that God revealed about himself in the past, did it get written down? It's a, it's a yes or no answer, okay? And you got a 50-50 chance. You're saying no. Why would you say no? Because it was one of the two options, okay? Okay. Do you have any illustration from Scripture? You said there's a number of informa- tidbits of information that were given, but we don't have it recorded. Okay. But we're, do, do we know from Scripture? Do we know any times where God had spoken or revealed something and he chose not to have it written down? Okay, I'm Patmos, but he, he still gave some direction. Go ahead. 
Yeah, yeah. Now, if we, were, if we were to take one verse, that would probably be the verse jump to. But even if you know about tongues, tongues was special revelation, was it not? And they didn't all get written down. But we know this. We know that when it says, if all the things that Jesus had done, and everything Jesus did was revealing God the Father. Okay, So it says that if all the books, uh, if everything he did, it would fill all the books in the world. So we know that not everything that God spoke to somebody was written down or that he gave in a special sense. Let's to this question. Was everything that was written in the Bible a result of special revelation? I'm going to answer this yes and no. Okay, yes in the fact that did God superintend that everything that was written down was what he intended and guided to be written down? That's a yes. What's the no part about this? Let me, let me give you an illustration of the no. The no part would be Luke chapter 1. Do you remember that Luke says he is researching the life of Jesus Christ? So he didn't sit passively by and let God do all the work and just speak to him. He went out and he interviewed. He went out and he studied. And God used his study and information, but then as he wrote it, God was directing him so that it was being written down. But some of the premise of what he was given and what he received was from his own work and study, hearing the mind and the spirit and the teachings of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? that he had to do some work, he had to do some research, and yet God guided the conclusion of his research to make sure that it was recorded properly. And so my point is that individuals don't ju- just didn't sit passively by and then everything just came to them. At times God requir- required them to do some research, some work, and some examinations to try to find out information. Is everything written in the Bible truths from God to live by? Everything you read in the Bible, is it a truth to live by or to follow? No. Why not? Okay, one is because, let's, let's go back, because some of the commands given in ages gone by, they, they don't apply to us today. Correct? Okay, like what, give me a command that was given ages ago that we don't follow today. We, we aren't supposed to. Sacrificing of animals. Okay, you didn't bring them in your car today. Okay. Okay, we don't need to do that. We don't need priests today. Okay? We don't have those things. As well, is there some things that are recorded in the Bible that we, sh- we don't want to follow? Okay, okay, let me, let me tell you, is there, is there, are there bad things recorded in the Bible that we shouldn't do? Yeah, yeah, okay. There are, there are recorded uh, evil deeds, bad advice that is given, okay? Solomon, in the beginning of Ecclesiastes, say, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Basically, eat, drink, and be for tomorrow. Yeah, and it's a very pessimistic attitude. Did he really feel that way? The answer is yes. Was he thinking through that? Yes. But then as you follow through Ecclesiastes, it's his journey of coming out of that doldrums, and he comes to the conclusion that we need to fear God and keep his... Yeah, okay. So where he starts and he's giving advice, it's dismal advice. It's not advice that we should be following. You have to understand the context. It's coming from a depressed, backslidden person. And then it shows his journey where he gets his heart right with the Lord. And so, you, not all advice. I mean, there's, there's, you know, um, there's comments that Satan makes that even Adam and Eve fell for. 
okay, that he's giving advice. So our point is, it's truly recorded, truly happened, but we have to understand the what about all the different advice. You have to understand, big word, context. You have to understand the context. Who's saying at what time? Is there ongoing inspiration or inscripturation? Are people getting the dreams, the visions, and writing scripture in 2018? No, no. We talked about this last week because of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, when the scripture is completed and that which is in part will be done away with. The tidbits, the little bit of things. Is there ongoing illumination? The work of the Holy Spirit helping people to understand the, the word of God. Yes. How often does that happen? Yeah, it's happening in your lives a lot. It ha- it'll, it'll happen this morning during the, during the Bible study time when we do the worship service, as I am teaching and trying to present things, some of you will launch off in your own minds and start thinking through the text and coming to some conclusions on your own. That's illumination. Some of you will sit here and listen closely to everything that I'm saying. God bless you. Okay, you'll sit there and, and listen to everything, and you will, you will say, oh, that makes sense, or you know, I agree with that, and there's that process of illumination. It happens for some of you already this morning when you took your Bible. Okay, and some of you tomorrow when you take your Bible and sit down and read it, study it, illumination is taking place. And it's that work of the Holy Spirit according to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that he is helping you to understand the mind of God because the Spirit of God is within you. So we understand that this is happening and we could look at the text. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about the Spirit of God helps you to understand the mind of God and he's working in you on a regular basis. And Jesus predicted that when the Spirit of God has come, he will guide you into all truth. Okay, and so that's the work of the Holy Spirit that we have the benefit of that remember they necessarily didn't have all that benefit of that indwelling spirit in the Old Testament. So we are far better off than they are. And so we conclude that we say, okay, our Bible is guided by God. Now the reason I'm saying this, this is very, very important, okay, because you are going to be exposed, if you go on the internet, if you pick up some commentaries, you're going to be exposed at times to some other uh, comments that are going to decry and say such things as we really can't believe that this was something that was absolutely recorded in scripture. It seems that Mark copied something from John that maybe wasn't to be there and they, there's going to be doubt cast about. You watch the History Channel. They are infamous for casting doubt on scripture and throwing up a whole bunch of other ideas about there's other biblical writings. And so you and I, we hear this all the time in our media age. And so let me just lay the foundation and we'll go. We believe, we teach, I hope you believe this, that God inspired so that he controlled those people to write down, to receive and to write down. Now their reception could have been through their own study. Could have been through their own exposure of talking to others to find out what did Jesus do. That's okay. They're going to receive it accurately. They're going to write it down accurately with the words and the phrases so that it is from the mind of God. Said the way God wanted it to be stated. That's inspired. That's what we mean by inspiration. Now that means this, and this is an important thought here. Because of God's work of inspiration, God is the one who determined which books belong in the Bible and which don't. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is this, is that there's a whole group out there that are going to say, well, men chose which books were going to be in the Bible and which ones weren't. That's not true. Men only had to recognize which ones were inspired. The inspired writings chosen by God, worked through and procured by God in such a way, they are the books that were to be in the Bible. And the reason we bring this up is because there are so many different books out there or groups that, that are going to present 
some additional scripture. The, the Roman Catholic Bible is called the Douay Version. They have 13 books in their Bible. Okay, and you say, where do they get purgatory from? They get it from the Apocrypha. They get it from those 13 books. Where do they get the ideas that you should pay for sins to be forgiven? They get it from their Bible. Okay, they didn't just come up with it. They got it from their Bible, but their Bible includes 13 books, and in there it talks about paying money for the forgiveness of sins. And so when you talk with a Catholic and you say, hey, you know, our Bible is the same as yours, that's not true, folk. Don't say that. Okay, they have a different version that has, a, that has additional books to them. And the debate years ago, okay, had been, well, how do we know those books should have been in there or shouldn't have been in there? And so that type of thing creates a problem. Um, in fact, uh, I'll give you Jehovah Witnesses, if they come to your door, they have a different Bible, a Greek translation, than the one you and I find our Bible based upon. They have in their New World Translation the beginning of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was... Okay, their translation says, and they've, it's changed in the original language. Their translation will say, and the Word was a God, not the God. Okay, and so they can argue and say, well, and so you say, well, we have the same Bible. Not in some of, their, in some of those specifics. How do we know that what we are holding is founded upon, um, that's a whole other study. How do we know that what we're holding is inclusive of all the books that were supposed to be in there and doesn't have additional books or we haven't missed books? There are other books. There's, a, there's a, a, another 1 Corinthians. We basically have the second and third letter to Corinth that Paul wrote. He wrote a previous letter. How do we know that letter didn't belong? How do we know that the letter to Laodicea, which Paul says he wrote, how do we know it doesn't belong there? How do we know that the book of Enoch should not have been in the Old Testament? By the way, it's quoted in the book of Jude. Yeah, how do we know those? Who decided this? God decided it. Men had to simply recognize which, was, which were inspired and which one weren't. So the big question comes down to, well, how did men recognize inspired books? Okay, and obviously some groups have a different standard. The Catholics have a different standard than most everybody else. Okay, and I'll explain that a little few minutes from now. Okay, but here's where we went back, okay? In the ancient believers, let's, let's go back into our ancestors' lives for a moment. In that, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the, Bible, the books of the Bibles are circulating between the churches. How do they know they should listen to Revelation as inspired? By the way, do you think Revelation was quickly accepted by the early church? Why would you say no? Why would you think people would, would question whether the book of Revelation should be in the Bible or not? It's scary stuff, okay? And it's is a little bit confusing. Yeah, it is. It's hard to understand. And so some, there was, there was most everybody, by the way, most all across the board, it was accepted. But there was a few that would say, wait a minute, it's so confusing. Maybe it doesn't belong. Because most scripture was easily, readily understood. And that was, that's an exceptional book. And so we go back and we study the writings of the very early church leaders. They were saying, okay, we need to recognize which epistles of Paul were from God and which ones weren't. We need to recognize, um, you know, look at some of these books about the birth, of the, the childhood of Jesus Christ. 
We need to look and see, okay, there's lots of books. There's the books of Thomas. There's the book of Mary Magdalene. There's the book by John the Baptist, claimed to be. Um, Were these books supposed to give us more information about Jesus Christ? Should they be in our gospel setting and things like that? So what they did is they developed a standard based upon what had been previously known from the Old Testament. And this standard or measuring stick is called, the word, the word for standard or measuring stick is called canon. Okay, canon. You will see this in a lot of Bibles. In fact, if you have a study Bible, you're going to see C-A-N-O-N. You're going to see canon. In fact, as time went by, your scripture came to be called, another term for it was canon. C-A-N-O-N. And so that comes from the idea that what they did is they had a measuring stick. They had a, they had a basic standard to say, okay, how do we know this is inspired by God? How do we know it isn't? And so they used what, they had, what, what books of the Bible were without debate, without question, to help become a measuring stick for some of those books that were more questionable and uh, spurious and some of those that they, they had, some people at first said should or shouldn't it. Uh, and how do we recognize this is from God? And so there was a criteria for it. Let's go back to the Old Testament just to say, okay, where do we, how do we know the 39 books of the Old Testament really were and are what God intended for the Bible? So when you go back to the Old Testament, you need to probably recognize that it has been and had been recognized for generations by the Jewish community. For, for generations, even before Jesus Christ, they already had said, okay, we have these 39 books. Well, I take that back. They said that they have the books. Their numbering of books are different than ours. In the Jewish Bible, they don't have 39 books in the Old Testament. They have less. Okay. Do you know why? Uh, what do they do with First and Second Kings? It's one. What do they do with First and Second um, um, Chronicles? It's going to be one book. What do they do with the the minor prophets? You know, they, they make them one. And so the numbering is a little bit different, but the, uh, the content. In fact, if you were to look into, your, into a Jewish Bible, this is the way they would, uh, they would lay it out. This has been for centuries. They would say there's three sections of the Old Testament. There's the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And they would, in their own Bible, say this is the way that they're listed out. And so their, chronolo- their order of books is different than your and my, o- my order of books. Okay, they arrange the uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Job. They arrange them under the writings. They would put under the prophets, you know, the twelve. That's the minor prophets. They would put down some of the historical books under what we would call, you know, the poetical books or the writings. They put Daniel down there, Ezra, Nehemiah, some of the chronicles. And so this is the order of their Bible. This was the order of their Bible when Jesus was on earth. Okay, the commonly accepted. That's very important to understand. So your first book is which book? Okay, Genesis. What's your last book? Far right column, last one down. Chronicles. Okay, that's really critical to keep in mind. Okay, if we understand this, if we understand how their Bible was arranged. Now, Jesus often said that when you study, and he made this comment multiple times, study the law the prophets and the writings, they speak of me. What was he referring to? All of the Old Testament. Okay? Because that's how they grouped it. The law, the prophets, and the writings. 
Okay, and so you have comments by Jesus where he made those types of statements where he would, he would talk about and say that they refer to me. And he is using from his understanding the Bible that they were using at that day. There is a passage that he makes comment about. Now remember, what's the first book? This isn't to be hard, but just there's Genesis, what's the last book? Chronicles, okay. Watch this statement made by Jesus. You can look it up in Luke chapter 11. Okay, you may want to mark it in your Bible. He makes the comment, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zacharias, which perished between the altar and the temple. Truly I say this, and this is Zechariah, not the prophet, but Zechariah, who was one of the high priests at the time when it was the last, um, right before the, what we call the exile, right before they were taken out okay, uh, into their 70 years of captivity. It's the last chapter of Chronicles. It's the very first, we would say Second Chronicles 31 or so, that, that he talks about the killing of Zacharias. Now think this through. That is, Jesus is saying from Abel, which is in which book of the Jewish Bible? Genesis, all the way to the very last chapter of the Jewish Bible, Chronicles, where it tells the story of Zacharias getting killed, what did Jesus just say is absolutely affirmed? The Old Testament. The entire Old Testament, as they had the Old Testament put together. He is saying, all of this is referring to me. All of this is talking about me. And he has confirmed that all those books in there are part of what's inspired by God giving direction. And so that was critical to church historians to say, wait a minute, Jesus affirmed Jesus put a stamp of approval on the Old Testament as it was designed back in that day, as it was put together. The law, the writings, the prophets, from Abel to Zacharias. And so that, the point of the passage was, just, was multiple other thoughts, but he has just confirmed the Old Testament writings as they were in, if you had a Bible at that time, in your hands of the writings uh, of the Old Testament, you would have said, okay, from cover to cover, from, from A to Z, he's just accepted all the Old Testament. So that helps us out immensely. Say, okay, Old Testament, Jesus put a stamp of approval. Now, here's where we, our church fathers, had to deal with. They said, okay, there's 27 books. And do you think people would have written books and said, I've got scripture? Do you think anybody would have jumped on the bandwagon to say, I'm writing scripture too? Why? Why would anybody do that? Notoriety. You mean Christians want to be famous in the church? Okay. Could they make profit off of this? Were there hucksters in the early church? Were there people who wanted to be lauded in the early church? Do you remember the whole issue of tongues in the church in Corinth? Was that people wanted to be able to stand up and everybody go, Ooh, ah. And so why did Ananias and Sapphira lie about what they were giving? It was all about accolades being noticed so that human nature is not new to our age there were people writing books and they were claiming that they were inspired and that therefore if they're inspired they must be an apostle and they had special privileges and so there's hucksters that would take advantage of it and so the church fathers knew that and they had to deal with it now here is the canon or criteria that they used this is based upon that idea they they knew that holy men of old were led by the Spirit. That's clearly stated. We know that Hebrews even wrote, God in these last days spoken unto us by a prophet. Now, they could go to the Old Testament and say, yes, God even said that there are certain individuals, you've got to test those individuals, what they say is true, false, all those criteria. And their point was 
that, that does this. God, God made it clear he is speaking through holy men. He is speaking uh, primarily through those who first heard Jesus. And then it was communicated on. So they would look and say the authorship of the book. They would want to say, ask the question, was it written by an apostle, by a legitimate apostle? If it's written by a legitimate apostle, that adds credibility to it, does it not? Yes, no? Okay, because the apostles had that direct communication. Was it written by somebody as an associate of an apostle? Take the Gospel of Mark. Mark was an associate for a period of time of the Apostle Paul. We know that. We know that towards the end of his life, he was an associate of Peter. And so he was close to those men. He would have had more of those details that they would have been, Peter would have been able to explain to him. And so that lends credibility. Okay, that's not the only thing. They not only looked at authorship, they looked at agreement. Agreement would be this idea, is what is this book saying? Is this book agreeing with what's already been revealed? Does it have agreement with the teachings of Jesus that we accept? Does it have agreement with what was predicted about Jesus? Does it have agreement with some of the prophecies? Does it agree or does it teach something different than what's been previously shared? If all of a sudden, let's, let's do the life of Jesus. Let's get a book that we say, okay, this book shows up, which is true. It showed up around 200 A.D. This book shows up, and it is a book about the childhood of Jesus, 200 A.D., Okay, it's, start, it's being circulated. It's talking about the childhood of Jesus, and it says that Jesus, as a boy, he changed other boys who bothered him into birds. The trees bowed down to give him fruit. It talks about him um, being able to heal people as a child. Why would around 200 A.D. that it first shows up? Why would you say that can't be that can't be scripture? It, what's that? First miracle of an already preceded material written by an apostle. That material very clearly says his very first miracle was at the wedding of Cana. This book that shows up generations later, almost you know, a decade, the John's writing would have been showing up in the 60s. This thing shows up 150 years later, and it is... It is disagreeing with what already we clearly know is written by the Apostle John and has clarity and agreement. So you look at it and go, okay, by canon, that book's out of there. We can't accept that book. Okay, why? Because it's contradictory information. And so you go by the content of the material. Is it recognized? Does it agree with the message of Scripture? The Apocrypha, okay, was pre-Scripture. Okay, it's written in that, some of it is written in the era between the Old and New Testament, in that 400 silent years. In that period, in, that, in one of those books, it talks about you pay money to get your sins forgiven. What would that tell you about that book, even though it's old? What, is, what do we know from scriptures? It, it, it's, not, it's biblically not correct. It goes contrary to the message of Jesus Christ. Okay, and so that's one that even though, even though it was around, it wasn't accepted by the early church. In fact, it doesn't get accepted until late as far as church history as being part of canon. It doesn't get put in until 1500s. And the only reason it gets put in in the 1500s is because at that point, the, the organized church needed something to support their almsgiving. They had that program, remember, that you pay for your sins? Right? Yes? Church history? Any of this make sense to you? Okay, and so if we're go- you're being challenged by people like Martin Luther and others who are saying, we don't need to pay for forgiveness. Well, you better find something that says you do. 
Okay, so it's proof texting is what it is. So you go back, you find ancient writings that says, oh, this ancient writing says you pay alms for forgiveness of sins. Oh, well, let's put it in our Bible. You're motivated by greed, money, okay, your system. There's another canon. This is a canon that is very important. This comes out of Deuteronomy 18, where Jesus says, if you know somebody's a prophet or speaking of God, because they better be accurate in what they're saying, Yes? Okay, so since inspired writing comes from God, they better be accurate. They better be giving right details. They better not say that Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Persia. Okay, because Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Okay, oh, that's, a, that's an oops. Well, you can't have oops in Scripture, right? Because if it has an oops in one area, it might have oops in... Other areas, and it has oops when it's giving some details. Maybe it has an oops in John 3, 7. You must be born again. Maybe that's an oops, too. And we say, no, that can't be. Okay, well, then the rest of it better be accurate in its customs, cultural ideas, things of that sort. If there are errors, it can't be inspired. And that was a real quick way of getting rid of a lot of writings out of, that were floating around to just say, oh, there's a whole bunch of oops in those ancient writings that just that show that they are not from the mouth of God. The effect. The effect is basically, okay, my word does not return void unto me. It's going to impact. It's going to produce. It's going to have, it's going to have some you know, cause and effect into the spiritual void, uh, spiritual life of individuals. And so you look and say, does this book have an effect where it really moves spiritually? Authority. Does the book display morality? Standards that God has standards. Living per his standards of holiness and righteousness. You read most of the books of the New Testament, you automatically go, okay, Okay, there's a huge standard here on a moral standard that may not be popular, but it is true in absolutisms. There's the idea of acceptance, another criteria that they would look at, and they would say, okay, we know that books even written by Luke were, ex were accepted by the apostles as being inspired. We have uh, those texts that show up. Let me see if I can get there. Um, in 1 Timothy 5, he's quoting from Luke chapter 10, and he's saying, Scripture says, well, if the apostles who know the mind of God are saying that that book was inspired by God, they're there, they're accepting it. They, even when the apostles are there to debate or to be able to correct some of these writings about Jesus, what they would reject, what they would accept, the acceptance idea is very, very, very important. In fact, he says, writing about Paul, Peter says this, Paul also wrote to you some things in them that are hard to understand, which, are, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do other inspired writings. And so Peter is saying Paul's, a lot of Paul's writings, they are inspired. And they are giving the criteria, the standard, one for another, accepting it. So here's what you have historically, that in this time period, remember, uh, the book of Revelation isn't even written until what year? A.D., give me a guesstimate. In mid-90s, mid-90s. So even before the, the uh, New Testament was completed, there was almost all the New Testament books are being accepted and being, being put down and being quoted as authoritative and inspired by God the Father. And so as you go through and you do a little bit of historical study, you say, okay, here it is that, that there was a couple, two, three books that they were questionable up until around 200, that they, some said yes, some said no, uh, and it was very, very few that were saying the no, but they were commonly accepted. So from church history, the fact and the truth is the 27 books that we have that we say are in the New Testament very early on, 
Very early on, they were accepted, they were put in, and they were being quoted. This idea that comes out of a variety of Hollywood movies that says that it wasn't until the mid-300s or 500s when people sat down because they were accepting everything as Scripture, and then they finally sat down and they codified it all in the mid-300s. Prior to that, they didn't have a Bible. That's just not historically accurate. That is Hollywood fable trying to discredit the Bible. So historically, you have these assurances that you and I can say, okay, um, they, were, you know, they, they were commonly quickly accepted. Now, here's a fact historically. Not every book, soon as it was written, was universally accepted or known by the church. Why is that? Just think, put yourself back in 64 AD. Paul is writing you people over in that corner. He is writing you who are in the church of Philippi. Why would, it, why would we, it would take the rest of us a little bit of time to accept Philippians as scripture? Yet the, the book has to travel, okay? We don't, they don't have internet. How quickly does writings travel back in those days? Hey, let me give you an illustration. Let me give you, when did Caesar Augustus, when did he make the decree that the tax was supposed to go in relation to the birth of Christ? Two years before it goes in place. Two years is when he made the decree before it got enacted. Why does it take two years back in those days? I mean, seriously, if the government wants to do taxes, how quick can they make taxes today? They can make it for yesterday, Right? How come it took the Romans two years to say this is the tax, but before it got done, it was over two years? What's that? Yeah, they, the, the, the information would move as fast as a horse, but it also had to be copied. How quickly do you Xerox things back in Bible days? Okay? And so it, it, would, it would move slowly. It took time. And, so it, and, and what's more remarkable, some will say, well, wait a minute. For instance, Philippians is written in the mid-50s. Let's go in the mid-50s or 60s. And there was, there was some people that didn't write about it until 70 A.D. I think that's fast in, in Bible days. That's quick. Okay, just because it took time. It took time to get copies. By the way, if you were making copies of the Bible... And you wanted a, and you get a copy of the Bible. What would you be inclined to do? You're, you're sitting in a church. Faith Baptist gets a letter from Paul. What would be, we be inclined to do? Okay, we, we make sure it's right. We know it's from God. And we say this is God's writing. What would we want to do with this letter? Okay, would we want to make sure that the first people who get it is us? Yeah, make sure if we're making copies, let's get it to everybody in this room who can read. Why? Because it's written to us. Okay? So this idea of, okay, let's copy it and let's share it with everybody. Well, by the way, we don't know who lives over in that corner of the Christendom. We don't know those people. Why? Because we live way over here. And we don't know about you people way in the corner. Okay? That, you know... You're, as far as we're concerned, you don't, you don't exist. The only world we know is Lebanon. Okay. We don't know if we drive off the edge of Pennsylvania, if you go into a chasm. We don't know there's an Ohio. I'm not trying to be silly, but I am. Does, does that make sense? That, that, that would, so the, the fact that the Bible spread up to by 120, it was commonly accepted. That is 
not showing it slow. It shows speed within Christendom. It's an amazing fact when you start talking about all these things that are that the that the history channel will make you will try to make you and I'm I'm picking a history channel though I love it. Um, they they pick they make it sound like oh man the Bible is so doubtful. You turn it around historically and go, it's an incredible how God moved it. How God worked. Okay, here's a question that's important because some of you, um, you, you get referred to this. You get asked this. Several of you have already asked me about this. You know, well, how do you respond to the Apocrypha? Here's the, here's the criteria, the canon that, it, that the Apocrypha um, uh, violates. There, when we say there's 13 books, that's common. There is also a section that's put to the book of Daniel, and then there's a couple others that some will say are part of it, some aren't. But basically, the, prof, pro, uh, the Apocrypha means hidden books. And they were hidden in the sense that they were, they were you know, not commonly accepted for generations and generations. And so the reason that church fathers, early church fathers, and the Jewish peoples never included them in their scripture were these, I'll give you five reasons quickly. Um, they contain heresy, such as, and i give you the quotes, okay, they talk about forgiveness for alms, prayers for the dead, souls being preexistent in, in some other place, and then all of a sudden being put down into a baby's body when the baby's born. Uh, so they talk about those things, okay, which don't fit scripture. There's another reason, and that is because they're inaccurate. There's a lot of statements given within these different books that they give the wrong dates, they give the wrong names for kings, they give you misinformation, or bad information. So they're inaccurate. And all of them contain some of these. I'll just give you a couple examples. They are morally questionable. Um, one of the books says that suicide is justifiable. One of the books says that it's okay to do lying. One of the books talks about being cruel to your slaves and abusive. And that is totally proper, totally correct to abuse the slaves, uh, which goes contrary to, to a moral code given in real inspired writings. Um, here's uh, here's comes up. Okay, the uh, acceptance idea. It was not accepted by the peers and for generations. The New Testament only cites one. It's the Book of Enoch in referring to, reference to um, the Book of Enoch is the one that makes the comment that Satan and Michael the archangel were fighting over the body of. Moses, okay. Um, and so Enoch probably had, well, obviously Enoch had it right, even though the rest of the writing isn't inspired. He had that historically uh, correct, and so God picks up on that and, and confirms that as a historical fact uh, that Enoch had been one of the first to write about. The early church fathers spoke against them in the first century, the second century, up into the third century. They, the early church leaders who were close and in that time period of the apostles that could have confirmed or stated, they spoke vehemently against these books as not being a part of the scriptures. In fact, they don't get accepted officially until 1543. Okay, that's the first that they get officially marked, stamped as these are from God by the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church is the only one that, that stamped it, correct. In fact, through the Reformation, most of the Reformers rejected the Apocrypha. And so it was, you can tell just by that fact that it was debated for generations after, after generations. And number five, the fifth reason that we give is they never claim 
They, they don't have the same impact. Then there is no claim within these books that they come from the mouth of God. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. There is no claim. They don't even act as if or claim to be from the mouth of God, much less uh, do others say they are from the mouth of God. So you have all those reasons. Okay, let me jump into something and wrap up for the next few minutes with this. Some practical suggestions for your Bible study. You have confidence. This is the Bible. This is all that God wanted to give. It all comes from God. We've already done a study. How do we know about inspiration? We talked about you know those things a few weeks back but now that we're sitting there and saying okay i got this bible what can i do okay and again i'm going to repeat some of the same things we did three weeks ago read it over and over have a daily time of just reading now you're going to do more than just reading when we talk bible study but read it because you just get familiar with it and it just sinks in read it systematically what i mean by that is this is don't just Your Bible study is not profitable if you just randomly open a passage and this day I'm going to read this paragraph. Or next day I'm going to read that paragraph. You don't do that with any other piece of literature and get a whole lot out of the story. If you pick up a novel and you say, okay, I'm just going to read chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, and then tomorrow I'm going to read the end of chapter 23, and then the next day I'm going to go to chapter 18, you, you never read anything else that way. Okay, read your Bible. It's a story of God working through history. And all these books, they have a common thread. So read it systematically. By that, what we mean is have a plan for reading. Your plan of reading it by book, okay? Fine, if you're going to only read a certain few, uh, few minutes per day and you're going to read, okay, take the book of Hebrews and make that your reading for the week for a couple of weeks, for three weeks, and just read it and reread it again. So you become really familiar with it. That will enhance the time. Uh, if you know we're in a series on the book of Judges, read through the book of Judges. Read it systematically so that it can enhance your reading, enhances your Bible study time. Read it chronologically. I mentioned this before. If you start reading, okay, read in the, in the Bible the way the books were written chronologically. Okay, and which, which in order, and you'll get more of an idea. And you have study Bibles that would help you out. Read it by need, okay, in the sense that, okay, I'm going to be reading, and it's just not that I'm going to make it dutiful, but I'm going to just not go through the process, but I'm going to try to make application of my heart. My heart. Read with variety. That in variety could be including multiple translations. Okay? And again, I'm not saying every English translation out there is good. Okay? Be careful. But at the same time, it doesn't hurt to pick up you know, um, uh, some good, solid um, translations that were done with, with good translation work in mind and use them to just say, okay, make some comparisons and reading it through. As you're going through your Bible, have a pencil or pen. Now, I'm doing a little bit of Bible study. And you're doing a pencil pen. A couple of you were telling me a couple weeks ago, you had questions about, you know, several of you were calling each other and saying, hey, we heard this from some, some person said this on radio or TV or something or another. And we've been studying this topic in the Bible. And we've been looking up verses about this and this, and I forget exactly what it was. But it was a good study topic that, that uh, it was a choice of the apostles. It was in Acts chapter 1. The choosing of the apostles. Was it right? Was it wrong? And whoever they had made the statement was, it was absolutely wrong to have chosen Matthias. Da 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 da. And so a couple were saying, well, did the church make a mistake? Let's do a little bit of a Bible study. And so they were doing Bible study and learning, oh, wait, according to Acts 1, their Bible study revealed that there was criteria for an apostle. Oh, that was helpful because then they were able to understand what the role of the apostle was. And so doing that little bit of Bible study involved writing down verses and doing some cross-referencing, and it was good. 
And if you approach it with a Bible or, I mean, with a pen or something in hand, you make notes. And notes are good. For some of you, let me throw it out this way. Some of you sitting in a service, taking notes is a distraction to your mind. You can do better by not taking notes. Especially if you ever sit under somebody who talks fast and you can't keep up with the notes. Okay, sometimes that can be a distraction. Because if you're a monk-type person, you know, Adrian Monk, you, you missed a line back here, and you can't move forward until you get that note. That, by the way, that is a motivating reason. I'm telling you the truth. That is a motivating reason why I put the, put the things on the screen. Because a number of people were getting frustrated because they couldn't keep up with the speed of which I go. And so we have a choice here, that I learn to slow down, which is not going to happen, Okay. Or we use other tools for those of you who take notes that would help you and not frustrate you. And so this is a helpful tool that can enhance your Bible study, not detract from your Bible study and get me out of the way. And so having a pen or pencil, some of you listening in a sermon, this is me. This is not my wife. She's just the opposite. But for me, if I don't take notes, my mind drifts. And my mind can drift anytime, anywhere. I can be thinking about something different in a message when I'm speaking, and it's like, how come I'm thinking about that light flickering up there, and I'm talking about something totally different? Okay. And so I need, I need to be taking notes. And so it helps me out in writing, and, and I, uh, I do this when I'm doing my sermon prep. I have so many pages of, uh, on the back ends of, you know, when I'm doing sermon prep, I have six, eight pages of just jotted notes as I'm reading different things, and, and then I get frustrated because I misplace those pages, and they're out of order, and it's a riot. It's a, it's a real pain for the other people who work for me, okay? Because I come out and say, Val, what'd you do with my paper? Um, and she's like, ah, and she goes in my office and finds it in another stack. Um, so that's life. But here's what we do. Take notes. Have a plan or guide. And what, I'm, what we want to do with this is this idea. If you're doing your personal Bible study, have something that you can follow. Have some questions that you're going to be asking regularly that you know you're going to ask. When you sit down and read your Bible, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, have a series of, okay, this is what I'm looking for, to train your mind that when you're looking for something as you read through the text and you write those things down. I'll, I'll give you an example in a couple minutes. Okay, so if you... If you don't have a Bible study that you can get from a lot of these different companies, a lot of Bible studies you can order online that they'll say, okay, let's do a study of the book of Galatians. Let's do a study of something. Then if you don't grab one, make your own. We'll show you some of those options you can make. Walk away every time with something that you can work on or think about this day. Have something you can walk away. So that's just not routine, but something that you've learned, that you can meditate on, something that you can do during the day. Give yourself an assignment. This is what you're going to do. It'll make your Bible reading, your Bible study, so much more profitable if it is in your... Hey, let me throw it like this. Okay, we, um, we give you these... Oh, that's not it. Um, we give you these Bible memory cards, okay? What's the best way to lock this into your mind? You sit there and you go over it and go over it and go over it. What's the best way to make sure that it sticks in your mind? Uh, beyond writing it down. Use it. Get into a conversation and use it. It's the same way of remembering somebody's name. How do you best remember their name? You stand there and talk to them five minutes, but you forget their name in the course of the conversation, and then you're going, who were they, who were they? Use their name in your conversation. It'll help plant it in. And if you use it wrong, they should correct you. Okay, but, um, but that's the idea of, okay, how do I learn something? Use it. 
Use it. Make it work in your life. Use that with your Bible on a daily basis. Walk away and invest in helpful Bible study tools. You, you can afford this. We can afford what we think is important. Buy commentary. That's a good commentary. A one volume, a two volume. If you want some suggestions, we can talk about it afterwards. But we have, go into our bookstore. We've purposely put books in there that are simple, uh, easy, Bible study helps. Um, in the bookstore, some commentary sets that would be an investment that you could have for years and years and years and years and years. And I, and, 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 um, and I know internet is good, but does internet also have some garbage stuff on it? Yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, there's some garbage stuff on Bible study. Okay, um, terrible, some terrible stuff out there you've got to be careful with. So if you have something that you're very comfortable and confident in, uh, we can recommend some of that to you. Here's what I'm saying about it. Create your own study journal. Have something, that your own notebook. Do something like this. You know, put specs down and then make this your study for the month that you're going to spec out each passage. You're going to look for sin to forsake. You're going to look for a promise to claim. You're going to look for examples to follow, commands to keep, significant thoughts about God. This is, your, this is what you're following every day for a month. You will improve your Bible study. You will get a lot more out if you do something like this, and then you walk away with an application. But you have something that's guiding what you're doing so that you're thinking through the passage why you're going through. You could do it this way. Some suggest doing soap. That uh, Here's another, another you know, way of doing it. Same idea. What you're doing is you're looking in the passage for these significant thoughts that will enhance your, your thought through the passage, working through the passage. Somebody has suggested we do this, ABC. Application, basic ideas, cross-references. That's a way of just, okay, simplifying. I, personally, I think the specs is a fabulous one. It helps my mind to look for several things, and as I go through a text, it just helps me to be focused on that. And so the whole idea is that you're looking for the, in the Word of God for something that you can write down and then you can cogitate on, you can think about, and it'll enhance your Bible study so that it becomes more, more profitable. The more profitable it comes and you walk away, you will enjoy it more. And the more you enjoy it, the more you're going to be consistent with it. It's very simple. Okay, it works that way.